Malcolm Gladwell has a book very much worth reading called The Tipping Point, How Little Things Can Make a Big Difference. One theme of the book, as the title makes clear, is that sometimes the most minuscule, seemingly insignificant changes can serve as the difference between astronomical success and cataclysmic failure. The book is filled with examples of this phenomenon. In one example, Gladwell points to a comparative study undertaken in the 1960s on how to convince students to get tetanus shots. In the study, college seniors at Yale University were divided up into two groups. Each group was given a booklet. The booklet for the first group explained the dangers of tetanus in horrifying, alarmist language. It showed color photographs of a child having a tetanus seizure and other tetanus victims with urinary catheters, tracheotomy wounds, and nasal tubes. The booklet for the second group described tetanus in more mild terms. This booklet contained no photographs, and the risks of tetanus were omitted. The social psychologist, a man named Howard Leventhal, wanted to see whether the group who was left terror-stricken would be more likely to go ahead and get a tetanus shot than the group which was politely informed. When the two groups were surveyed afterward, the first group was, indeed, far more concerned about getting tetanus and far more motivated to get a tetanus shot than the second group. Yet, interestingly, the actual percentage of college seniors who got tetanus shots was the same across both groups. Only about 3% of the students went to the health center to get tetanus shots. Leventhal, perplexed by these results, decided to redo the test. But this time, he included a map in the booklet which showed where the health center was located on Yale's campus and the times at which the shot was being offered. This tiny, tiny detail dramatically changed the results. The number of seniors who got tested skyrocketed from 3% to 28%. It was also irrelevant which of the two booklets the students received. The two groups got the shot at the same rate. Finally, Gladwell notes that these were also college seniors. All of them would have known by this point in their college careers where the health center was located on campus. What prevented them from getting a tetanus shot then was not any lofty, sexy factor. It wasn't that they needed to be more scared or even that they needed to become more familiar with the campus layout. They just needed someone or something to hold them by the hand and make it extremely straightforward and seamless for them to get the tetanus shot. This phenomenon is, sadly, a universal one, one which we can all relate to. We know what we should do, and we even realize that to do it would not be very complicated or even difficult. The problem is that it is just a little too complicated, a little too inconvenient or so we have convinced ourselves. Often, when we summon up the courage to return that product to Amazon or answer that email or fill out that survey, we are astounded at how easy the task was which, would, which weighed on us for so long. And yet, how much easier it would have been if someone had held us by the hand and drawn a giant red arrow on the campus map for us.
You are listening to The Shrift, Life Tip 45, Isaiah 49. Related to this story from Gladwell is one of the most perennial questions surrounding the German Jews who suddenly found themselves living under the Nazis. Why didn't they leave? Why didn't they leave? Why didn't they just leave? Why did they remain in a country run by an anti-Semitic government which passed the Nuremberg Laws? Well, it should first be acknowledged that many Jews did leave when the Nazis came to power and even more after November 11, 1938, Night of the Broken Glass, or Kristallnacht. Nevertheless, the majority of German Jews were largely blindsided by how their government and their nation went from representing them to quite literally hunting them down. Today, we hear about the German Jews who had the prescience to see how imperiled their fate in Germany was. Men like Walter Benjamin and Gershom Scholem and obliquely Theodor Herzl. We remember these German Jews because they were the ones who got history right. Yet an awful lot of other Jews got it wrong. One reason, surely, why these German Jews did not leave is because they were simply used to and comfortable being German Jews. In one chilling anecdote, which may be apocryphal, the Gestapo broke into the home of a German Jewish businessman to seize him, arrest him, and then haul him off to a concentration camp. It is said that before he was dragged outside and thrown into a truck, he insisted on paying his electricity and water bills as he did each month. It was not as though the German Jews were unaware of the policies of the Nazis. It was not as though they did not see their rights being continually flaunted by the government. But the seniors at Yale were also informed about how dangerous tetanus was. Nevertheless, they did not get a shot. Some mental barrier had wedged its way into their minds such that the prospect of getting up and walking over to the health center seemed, seemed unthinkable. In the case of the German Jews, this mental barrier, I would argue, derived partially from their embrace of German patriotism and partially to be sure from the undeniable hardship immigration would engender. This attitude can be disturbingly witnessed in the writings of German-Jewish intellectual Hans Joachim Schopes. Schopes is largely forgotten today, yet in the 1930s he was one of the most prominent German-Jewish thinkers. He corresponded with Max Brod and Gershom Scholem and several other German-Jewish intellectual heavyweights of the era. He was one of the first people to write literary analyses of Franz Kafka's literature. His prolific career as an intellectual historian resulted in 16 volumes of scholarly research and analysis. Indeed, Schopes was a bona fide scholar. Nevertheless, the man found himself on the absolutely wrong side of history. Schopes could not break off his love affair with the German-Jewish symbiosis, even long after the Nazis had taken control of the country. In February 1933, Schopes founded a German-Jewish youth movement called Deutsche Vortrupp, Gefolgschaft Deutsche Juden, which preached avid German patriotism even amidst Hitler, Hitler's ascension to power. A contemporary of Schopes, 
Rabbi Joachim Prince, denounced Shopes and his followers as, quote, fanatic superpatriots, passionate anti-Zionists, and in a very real sense, anti-Semitic. They were self-hating Jews who thought they could save themselves by making common cause with the Nazis, unquote. In response to the rise of the Nazis, Schopes wrote a pamphlet entitled Via Deutschen Juden, which encouraged German Jews to remain fervently patriotic and Prussian in order to hold on to their place in German society, which they, as Jews, had worked centuries to achieve. Rabbi Prince panned this pamphlet as, quote, an exercise in sheer futility, morally, intellectually obnoxious, but nevertheless an expression of some streams within German Jewry whose adherents held stubbornly to their convictions that 1,600 years of German Jewish history could not be wiped out and that they were at least as German as the others, unquote. Schopes was not necessarily representative of German-Jewish attitudes during the rise of the Nazis. To quote scholar Abraham Rubin, Schopes never found much of a Jewish following. Ultimately, it was his lifelong endeavor to fuse German and Jewish identities that left him excluded from both worlds, unquote. Rubin adds that even though Schopes lost his mother in Auschwitz and his father in Theresienstadt, he continued to remain a German nationalist, always prepared to stand up for the fatherland. Schopes may be an extreme case, but he, if anyone, demonstrates the same tendency to be seduced by blind spots as the seniors at Yale discussed by Malcolm Gladwell were. Schopes, we might say, just could not get out of his own way, a damning fate when one must inhabit the same mind and body day after day. He was too mired in German quicksand to find, as many of his contemporaries had done, the gravel pathway leading out of it. The Yale seniors were finally graced with a map pointing the way to the health center. Schopes, however, never got a map which worked for him. In the accompanying Haftarah to the Parsha of Ekev, we read once more from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, ever darkly optimistic, preaches that even though the Jews are now suffering in exile, they will eventually return to Israel and reclaim their former peace and glory. Isaiah, in fact, wishes to emphasize how greatly Israel will once more be triumphant. Whereas now the Hebrews are in exile in Babylon and serving the Babylonian leaders, in the future, the roles will be reversed. Isaiah dramatizes this switch by proclaiming in chapter 49, verse 23, that kings and queens will lick the dust of the feet of Hebrews. Lick the dust of their feet. Lick the dust, he says. The late chief rabbi of England, Joseph Herman Hertz, has written a commentary on this particular verse. He notes that this is a phrase, lick the dust, which originates from the Far East and that it indicates the most abject humiliation. To lick the dust of another person's feet. Indeed, few actions could be more demeaning and humiliating than this gesture. One hears it and one thinks of, perhaps, slaves of the Roman Empire who, if they lost a glad gladiatorial match, had to plant their face to the ground and kiss the sandaled feet of some Roman prefect. 
an outmoded ancient custom, I thought, rarely if ever to be literally repeated in the 21st century. Or so, I thought. I then remembered my morning ritual. Each morning, while my coffee is brewing, I get down on my hands and knees with a dustpan and sweep up the floor. I sweep up hair, dirt, breadcrumbs, sometimes dead insects, and most importantly, dust. Not only that, but because my neighbor, whom I discussed last week, never cleans up, it is often his dust and other particles which I must clean up, lick up, so to speak. And so, even in the 21st century, almost every day I engage in what Rabbi Hertz referred to as the most abject humiliation. Here's the thing. It's not as though I am unaware of how unpleasant and even degrading it is to begin my morning this way. Like the Yale seniors, I know I should get a tetanus shot. Or put another way, I know I should get a dustbuster. A dustbuster. A dustbuster would allow me to stand up tall and clean up the entire apartment with a literal click of a button, like an emperor lording over his dust, lording over his people. In fact, I even have a dustbuster at my friend's apartment, which I could pick up whenever I wish, so long as he is at home. The problem is that he lives on the other side of the city. It's kind of a schlep. Instead, I tell myself, tomorrow, tomorrow you'll get the dustbuster from your friend and never have to put your face to the ground again first thing in the morning. It has now been over a year that I've been saying these words to myself. In this sense, I am not unlike Hans Joachim Schopes. I know deep down that I am being discriminated against in Germany, but I just can't bring myself to get out. I can't bring myself to just schlep over to my friend's house and pick up that dustbuster. I need someone or something to force a map upon me. As we go throughout our day, our lives, we are so often faced with opportunities to transform ourselves from slaves to kings. Yet, we deny ourselves the chance. We, like Shopes, get in our own way. Even if our food has gotten cold at the restaurant, we don't ask the waiter to have it reheated because, alas, it's just a little too much trouble and we're hungry. We continue to type whilst hunched over before our computers because, well, buying a portable Bluetooth keyboard would take a bit too much time and a bit too much money. Instead of reclining like kings, we stoop over like slaves, and it is our choice. In the Haftarah of Ekev, Isaiah has shown us the eminence to which we should aspire and of which we are worthy. And Malcolm Gladwell has inspired an invaluable life tip on how we should get there.